Welcome to Success Story, the most useful podcast in the world. I'm your host, Scott D. Clary. The Success Story podcast is part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network as well as the HubSpot Podcast Network. Now, the HubSpot Podcast Network has incredible shows like The Hustle Daily. It's hosted by Zachary Crockett, Jacob Cohen, Rob Litterst, and Juliet Bennett Ryla. Now, The Hustle Daily brings you a healthy dose of irreverent, offbeat, and informative takes on business, tech, and news. And it happens daily. So if you want to stay up to date on the latest and greatest, and some of these topics are interesting to you, then you're going to love The Hustle Daily. Uh, Topics like Amazon's grocery strategy, the rise of the ugly shoe economy, is AI the secret to love, and America's sleep deficit problem. So if these are topics you want to get into and you love hearing up-to-date content whenever you wake up in the morning, Go listen to The Hustle Daily wherever you listen to your podcast. Today, my guest is Ben Shapiro. He is the founder and CEO of I Hear Everything and the host of the MarTech podcast, a podcast that's also in the HubSpot Podcast Network. Now, Ben is a brand development and marketing strategy specialist. He left a career at eBay to become an entrepreneur that has run a bootstrap startup, multiple marketing teams at early stage VC-backed companies, as well as an independent consulting and content business expert. He specializes in helping growth stage companies understand how to identify the overlap between corporate identity and customer needs to build an effective marketing strategy. So he's built a business focused on content as a service and podcasts as a service. Uh, He's obviously done it for his own podcast. He's built now three shows total, including the MarTech podcast. And now this is something that he actually builds out for organizations that are better looking to marry up performance marketing and brand marketing to effectively target, reach, and convert their customers. So we spoke about his transition as VP marketing into entrepreneur, how the failures that he experienced as a VP of marketing at an early stage company translated into what he now does for organizations. And then it was basically after that a masterclass in podcasting. We spoke about uh, how he chooses different guests. We spoke about how he targets his listeners. We spoke about everything from his recording process all the way through to his editing and distribution process, why he gets and how he can get 100% of that audience to listen to the podcast versus many podcasts that perhaps your audience only listens to 50% of it. Uh, We spoke about long-form podcasts versus short-form podcasts. We spoke about daily podcasts. Uh, We spoke about his team, how he scaled his team, how he finds talent, all the different roles they fill, the automations that he's built in to help basically build his podcast and media empire. We spoke about growing a show. We spoke about audience behavior, audience avatars, editing at scale, batching episodes, driving traffic, uh, using podcast listeners as an audience that you can now retarget and sell to. So more data-driven B2B podcasting. So basically everything podcasting from uh, building your show and getting it off the ground all the way through to how do you use podcasts to actually turn listeners into paying customers at scale. So a ton of great podcasting lessons plus some great entrepreneurial lessons as Ben has built out an incredible business from the ground up leveraging technology, tools, resources that has allowed him to stay relatively nimble and not require any sort of outside capital to build up this business. So let's jump right into it. This is Ben Shapiro. He is the founder of I Hear Everything, as well as the host of the MarTech Podcast. 
I failed as a marketer. I I worked early in my career to get to the point where I could take on the uh, VP of marketing at a venture-backed early-stage startup role, and I finally got there, and I did everything wrong, just like I did when I had my first startup. And and I, you know, that's part of the lessons is you learn everything you're not supposed to do, and that's why when venture capitalists are looking for good. Uh, people to invest in. They're looking for somebody that's run two companies already. Um, so you get the first screw up out of the way. You you know, second one, you have some success and the third one, hopefully you really take off. And so, my, you know, my first time running a marketing department, I relied way too much on riding the performance marketing social media wave. And I totally forgot all the things that I had learned early in my career, which was, you know, how do you figure out who your customers are? And how do you um, build content that they find interesting so you could build a relationship without having to constantly pay for user acquisition? And so, you know, that's my first screw up uh, inevitably led to what I'm doing today. Hopefully that's a good cold open for you. Uh, <laughs> it's great. No, but and then but but at an early stage startup, I want to understand why you consider that a screw up, because for a for a VP marketing at an early stage startup to not focus on performance marketing, like you, I feel like you're going to get fired tomorrow because yeah, you, you need you need right. you need both of them. And honestly, that's what our business model is now: is you need, um, I will call it awareness and demand generation. Right, you need both yeah. sides of the coin. If you're early stage, you need to build content and develop, you know, some traction with Google, get your SEO going build your audience, whatever the channel you're going to use that's going to get people gravitating to your content, to exposure to your brand, all of those things that build your core actual audience and retain them and nurture them and keep in front of them. So when they're in market, they remember you. You need all of that stuff. You need awareness before you can sell. But you need the demand generation tools to get somebody into your funnel with an idea of converting them and, and monetizing them. And so the mistake that I made was I was all Facebook all the time. I was sitting there doing the creative myself, managing the campaigns. We didn't spend a lot of money on agencies. We didn't have a big enough team for me to step back and say, all right, I'm going to hand off what's the revenue driver. And so at an early stage company, that's always the challenge is you need to cultivate these organic growth channels while keeping your business afloat and getting your first, you know, 10, 100,000 customers, depending on your business model, through your paid channels and your personal or professional network. So, you know, I lost sight of the building the organic piece. And so after I had worked at this startup for a year, year and a half, whatever it was, you know, the founder came back, the CEO came back, and he was getting pressure from the venture capital company saying, quick, lower your LTV, you know, or sorry, raise your LTV, your LTV, lower your yeah. CAC, and that you can't do that quickly, right? You need to cultivate channels that bring in organic growth so you're not paying for the customers, so your CAC is lower and the highest LTV customers are the ones who come to you organically through content. And so quick, you know, move away from performance marketing. Well, it takes six months to a year to cultivate those channels. And so I basically caught got caught flat-footed. All I had done for a year was buy, 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 buy. And then when we hit that 
I don't know, a round or b round funding you know milestone whatever it is um for each company it's a little different when you get to that point where you're like okay we're going to course correct and we're not just going to buy to prove that there is product market fit but now we need to start focusing on unit economics you can't do that in a second you need six months to a year i didn't have six months to a year and the next thing you know I didn't like them. They didn't like me and the relationship soured. And I was, uh, you know, now I'm a talking head. There was a couple <laughs> steps in between there, but that's how I became a podcaster. So, so why did you jump into this? So you said you were, you said the, the, the version of, of your business now of, of creating all this content and also what you do for other businesses that was sort of birthed in your understanding of building relationships. So yeah, how did you understand that podcasting was the way that you wanted to go and you didn't just want to turn into a, a brand specialist or a customer success or retention specialist. You, you very, I'm, very targeted. I'm a marketer by trade. So more of a, a generalist and a strategist than an individual channel expert. Um, I'm also extroverted. So I really feel things um, and, and, and kind of live on the outside as opposed to the inside. And so when I had this job that I'd worked so hard to to get and then it didn't go well, you know, there was the emotional, personal part of my career that I needed to feel through and, and reconsider. So I was hurt. I was frustrated. I was upset. And it was either they were going to fire me or I was going to walk out the door. I, I still don't know to this day whether I quit or was fired, but it's a little of both. <laughs> and so I walked away and said, I'm going to take three months off. I've never really taken three months off from working, and I'm going to go figure out what I want to do with my life, or at least what my next J-O-B is going to be. And after three days of sitting at home, I had rebuilt my personal website, benjshap.com, to basically be an online resume, which was basically the homepage for my consulting practice. And so I launched that website on a Friday. and that Monday, I launched the website on a Thursday, got a note from a friend on Friday saying, I need to hire you as a consultant. And I was in the office on Monday. So I took, you know, three days off in between jobs, even though I plan on taking three months off, but they were short term projects. It doesn't count, right? It wasn't a full time W2 job with healthcare and equity and all the stuff. The money was better than what I was making. Right. My wife had healthcare. I guess I still probably had Cobra or, you know, I, I was sort of covered in terms of all of the like life things you need. Yeah. And I started taking on short term projects. One short term project led to the next, led to the next, led to some process. And three years later, I looked up and I was running a six figure consulting business and I had done it for years. So I just never hit that point where the short term projects dried up. And I built, you know, outreach and processes and used marketing technology to to scale the business. But I, after three years of being an independent marketing consultant, all of a sudden I was walking around saying I do brand development and marketing strategy, help people figure out the overlap between who they are and who their customers are. And then how do you cultivate marketing channels to get them off the ground? Stuff that I was inherently good at because I had experience in performance marketing, but new brand marketing as well. And so after three years, I came to the realization that I was building a consulting network off the back of my personal network, a consulting business off the back of my personal network. Um, so I was reaching out to the 1,500 contacts that I had on LinkedIn, talking to them about what I was doing and how I was helping other companies that were in similar stages and found enough work to survive. But after you, three years, I was kind of or... running out of... What's that? 
Did you enjoy it? Did you did you enjoy jumping into this, or was this like I'm just curious because most yeah, people, I loved it. Yeah, I loved it. I, I loved the independence. I loved the autonomy. I felt I had more respect in my career by me being the product. People mm -hmm. were buying. This sounds bad. Buying me. Yeah. Right. Not buying a marketer. They were hiring Ben. And so, you know, call me egotistical, that felt good. And when the projects went well, it felt like I was doing well. And so I enjoyed coming in and, and having respect and authority and autonomy, as opposed to all of the pressure from being an in-house marketing, you know, uh, VP that was hoping that the equity that I was going to earn in four years from now would be worth something. Um, and so I felt I was able to realize the work I was doing monetarily faster. I got more credit. Um, I enjoyed running a business. I enjoyed growing it, building my own products, thinking about my own branding. And then I wanted to expand. And so after three years, I started the MarTech podcast because I needed to reach more people. So my my clients became early and growth stage marketing companies. And so I created the MarTech podcast to interview the people I wanted to have as my customers, not thinking that the audience would grow very quickly. You know, I didn't have any any plans on being, you know, web famous or pod famous or whatever it is. I definitely wasn't thinking about being a B2B influencer, which is, you know, part of what my business is now. I was just thinking I was going to go interview people I wanted to be my clients and help promote a piece of content for them to build a relationship. And that was going to be your sales strategy, basically. You're using the podcast yeah. as a sales strategy. Yeah, exactly. And it, it truth, truthfully, uh, it was an experiment that went completely wrong. So I, I wanted to get a couple months into building the podcast, get some traction to then show people that I had credibility. Look how good this podcast is. I've been doing it for three months. We've got 15 episodes and a little traction. And what ended up happening was I realized that an individual episode was being consumed an hour long episode, people were consuming 25% of it. So I cut the episodes I was recording in half, and then people were consuming like 55% of it. So the shorter I made the episodes, the higher percentage people were um, consuming them. And then when I cut them in half again, instead of it going to like 75%, it was, you know, almost all of the episodes. So I found this format where I was able to interview someone and get, you know, somewhere between two to five pieces of content out of an interview. And all of a sudden, the audience was listening to the entire episode. And since we had five episodes instead of two a week, now we had a daily podcast. There was more organic growth. There was more virality because the guests were sharing the content because I was producing more for them. And the audience grew faster. So I looked up after three months and said, God, I've got like 3,500 downloads a month and we're we're growing at like a 30% clip. I'm just going to keep doing this for another six months. And somebody told me I can make more than beer money when I get to 10,000 downloads a month. That doesn't seem like it's that far away. I'm going to half consult and half do this podcast thing. And after 11 months, we had 10,000 downloads a month. And I said, I'm not going to do the lead generation thing I was going to do originally. I'm not going to try to sell to my guests. I'm going to see if I can sell sponsorships to people that want to reach marketers. And I sold $25,000 of inventory in the first 30 days. And the next thing you know, I was off to the races. And then we were. And it's really good business. beer money. <laughs> it's great yeah, beer money at that point. <laughs> I don't drink that much beer anymore. So, I mean, that's like a lifetime supply of beer for me. Did that, did that also have the added effect of um, uh, creating a, a nice inbound funnel for your business? Did you start to get leads from that as well for 
some of the consulting things or did you never really explore that? I pushed them away um, when I went to the sponsorship model. Um, and this is probably a mistake, but I put a lot of chips in the same basket of like, I'm doing this thing. I'm going to go see if I could sell some sponsorships. And so I got some, you know, interest in consulting work, but mostly what I was doing was starting to offboard my consulting clients saying, I'm doing this podcast. It's taking half of my time. I had an anchor client that paid the bills that took half my time and all the other relationships. I started to uh, basically put them on ice and end the life of them, wrap them up, hand them off to do the podcast, figuring I would be able to monetize the podcast. And what I was trying to do originally was diversify my revenue streams. I'll make $100,000 a year if I'm lucky as a podcast host. I'll make $100,000 a year from this anchor client. I'll I'll split it 50-50. And then the podcast revenue just outpaced all my consulting revenue. And so what I did was I transitioned the anchor client to being a sponsor of the second podcast I created, the Voices of Search podcast. And then I had two daily shows um, and and was able to basically leverage the same monetization model, which was helping us monetize at a, a faster rate than the uh, industry average. I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, ExpressVPN. Now, ExpressVPN is my preferred VPN of choice. I use it. I've had all my sponsors, but I actually have used uh, ExpressVPN for years now. In the online privacy, safety, and security world, they are the best. And I think we can all get behind how important it is to have safety, security, and privacy online. Not all VPNs are built the same, which is why when you're choosing a VPN to protect yourself, you have to choose a VPN you trust. These are the reasons why I trust ExpressVPN. The first thing they don't do is they do not log your activity online. Lots of cheap or free VPNs make money by advertising or selling your data to advertisers. ExpressVPN doesn't do this. So they've developed a technology, it's called Trusted Server, that makes their VPN servers incapable of storing any data at all. The second thing they do well is speed. So ExpressVPN uses something called Lightway. This is a VPN protocol they engineered to make user speeds faster than ever. You've tried VPNs before, I've tried VPNs before, where you try and load a site, you try and watch a movie, it doesn't work, it doesn't work at all or it doesn't work well, ExpressVPN solves for this, so it feels like you're browsing the internet without a VPN even though you are. And lastly, it's extremely user-friendly to set up, so it's not complicated, you load up the app, you press connect, and you're online, you're protected, and you're safe. So extremely user-friendly, which is important for people that just want an easy browsing experience. That's what a VPN should be. It shouldn't be technical. I always recommend protecting yourself with a VPN. Uh, ExpressVPN and Success Story, we partnered up. They put together a special link, expressvpn.com slash success story. And if you go to expressvpn.com slash success story, you'll get an extra three months free on a one-year package. So that's expressvpn.com slash success story. Three months free on a one-year package, expressvpn.com slash success story. Go visit expressvpn.com slash success story to learn more. So so to break that down, how you've structured your podcast format is extremely short form. So you're 15, you're 15 minutes, basically. And then you you take this long form episode, this long form piece of content, and you're not only using that as like for your content marketing, but you're using that to create this daily show. Um, I don't think a lot of people that I know have actually adopted your strategy. 
I think a lot of people do more of the long form strategy. They do like a show per week or something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, is this the way that you feel that all podcasts should be built out? Because like I'm taking notes and now I'm thinking through like, how the hell do I turn my show into a daily show without doing daily hour long conversations with different people? So I'm curious about people starting a show. Is this the format they want to, to go for? Or is this just because you have a certain niche that you're trying to serve? I think it depends on what you're talking about and the audience that you're trying to profile, um, uh, trying to reach. I think it also depends on who the host is. Um, your show's great, and it's longer form content than mine. Don't change a thing. I love your show. I appreciate so, that. But you I know, mean, it works. It it works. But I mean, for somebody starting out, this is this is a conversation for somebody starting out because then you have you know you have the opposite end of the spectrum. We were talking about this before the Joe Rogans of the three hours and like the 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 audience obviously is there too. So then the question becomes, so how do you understand your audience? How do you best serve them? This is a classic marketing problem now. And you figured out, and I'm curious yeah. because, is it because your podcast is highly actionable, like sort of bites of, of things that they can do tomorrow versus I really want to get to know someone. So I'm going to have a three hour conversation with them. And I like understand the inner workings of their mind. Maybe, they, maybe the business leader doesn't care about that. Maybe that's why it works. Yeah. So I, I always think of our podcast and the reason why the, the format works is because the, the content is dense. And so for people to understand, you know, the ins and outs of choosing a CDP that meets the needs of their business, there's a lot of acronyms. There's a lot of word salad flying around. Um, and it's hard to sort of comprehend all of it. So after 15 minutes, your brain's just like, I, pff, I don't get it. <laughs> Listening to something that's a little bit more narrative driven, like what's the story? How did somebody go through the hurdles? I, I would consider your podcast to be more entertaining because people are telling their life stories and how they became successful. And so I think that, you know, it's easier for people to listen to that format of content. You know, it's kind of like, well, what's better, a, a short or a long YouTube video or a short or a sure. long blog post? Well, it depends what you're talking about, right? Um, if we're talking about math textbooks, you know, you need to give me one line at a time and let me think about it. True. I'm not that Very smart. True. You know, some people can can digest that format quickly. So I, I do think that it all comes down to understanding who your customers are, who you're trying to reach with the content. Um, what the purpose of it is, and that should dictate the format. For us, marketing technology can be complicated and dense. And after 15 minutes, I work in marketing technology. I don't want to listen to it for more than 15 <laughs> minutes. So, you know, it's hard to to get more out of that sort of 15-minute time frame, or at least that's my philosophy um, and why we've created our show. So what we do is we break down dense content into short form so people can digest it daily and, and start to build the overall understanding of the genre and the topic. We do it for marketing. We do it for organic growth, you know, SEO. We're, we just launched our third show, The Revenue Generator, which is, you know, rev ops and combining marketing and product and sales. So, you know, there's a lot of complication in, in mastering these types of business mediums. And so we try to make it easy and digestible and we keep it light and we keep it fun. But, you know, if I was having an interesting conversation with somebody that was meant to last an hour and I cut it off after 15 minutes, I think the audience would be annoyed. So it, I think it depends on what you're, what you're really trying to accomplish. 
when you started this, you mentioned that you started cutting that podcast down in time and you noticed that you were getting sort of a, a longer listening session. So, you know, the, you cut it down to 30 minutes to listen to 50%. You cut it down to 15 minutes to listen to 90 to hundred percent. Did you do any additional work to figure out who that audience was? Did you, you have like an audience avatar that you nailed down? Like this person is, uh, at this type of company, this type of industry, this type of job role. It's really hard to figure out in podcasting who your audience is. And there's some data that we look at now to get a better proxy. Um, at a high level, I think that our audience are marketers that are interested in learning about how to use technology to grow their business and improve their career. Um, so inherently built into that, we're reaching marketers. And that's kind of as profiled as we get. Um, people have asked me, you know, what split of it is B2B versus B2C. I say we cover both of them because we talk about both B2B and B2C. What industries are they in? We talk about all, you know, e-commerce and media and SaaS, you know, so I don't think that we have an industry that is very specific, you know, probably not a lot of manufacturing, but, you know, marketers are marketers are marketers. They're, you know, they're, but I find it interesting. The only reason I bring that up is because you optimized your show a very different way than what I've heard JLD, like John Lee Dumas and Entrepreneurs on Fire. He says that he has such like a specific cust uh, audience avatar that he can tell you like their name, their hobbies, like when they drive to work and how they listen to the show. I just think it's interesting how different people approach, like, sh I don't know the best word to call it, the best, the best way to call it, like a show optimization differently. You just focused yeah. on. I, mean, I, I could go into more detail about who a marketer is, right? He's, he, his audience, I would guess is entrepreneurs. So I would guess that most entrepreneurs are, you know, 25 to 40, mm -hmm. probably closer to 35 probably skew heavily male. Hopefully that's changing more and more, um, you know, more hustle culture than chill work. Um, so they're getting to work on the earlier side and not listen to the podcast late at night. You know, I, like I could make up a profile. I'm guessing what his is and, and, you know, for marketers. And I think that when I say marketers, I don't mean entrepreneurs who are responsible for marketing. I mean, people that have careers in marketing and to hire marketers, you know, those are funded businesses to mature companies. Yeah. And so the profile skews a little older. We see that from our data in Chartable, where like our average age is in the 30s or 40s. The average income, you know, we kind of see this pile of household income that centers around $100,000, $125,000. Let's call those marketing operators. So that's your mid-career 20s to early 30s. And then we get a big spike in $200,000 of income or more. So that's probably your 35 to 45-year-olds. You know, and so like I have personas and customer profiles based on the data that we can get out of podcasting. But I can't tell you what type of music they listen to. You know, like I, 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 it doesn't get that sophisticated. I'm not making up a profile based on what I think of marketers, but honestly, it's the people that when I go to a marketing conference, yeah, I'm looking around at. So you know, like I know yeah. they're sent because I've been in the room with them. <laughs> um, so now you're you're on what three shows now? I think you you mentioned we just you have launched three. our third show actually. So. And I want to know your process because that's that's incredibly fascinating too. Like you have you have a you are the most process driven um operator i think i've met outside of me because i also obsess over how to figure out how to 
everything that I do down the line, all the way to the distribution, like it has to be like written out, codified, like everything has to be perfect for me so that I don't lose my mind. But you're taking it to an extreme because you're, you're the, the amount of stuff that you produce is absolutely insane for, and I know how big your team is too. So break it down. <laughs> so, well, here's what happened, right? I, we started the MarTech podcast. We launched the Voices of Search podcast. I, I built this sort of sponsorship model, but I was doing most of the work manually. And so my team wasn't very big. I had Todd, who's been working with me, um, you know, as a contractor since basically day one. And he started running the content operations. So that turned into, Todd, you write the show notes. I don't want to write the show notes. And then it was the the publishing, getting stuff into Libsyn and then Art19. And then it was, well, we're doing ads. So somebody's got to flight the ad. So I, I built all this documentation and training materials to hand it to Todd. And then he became too busy because we were doing two shows and we started doing other activities that we said, hey, let's go get freelancers and contractors around the world take advantage of the economics of geography and start documenting what we're doing so we can hand it to somebody else. And then let's build automation so we can let the team that we're building know when they're responsible for executing a given task. And so, you know, it was kind of like we did everything manually for a year and then I started offboarding it to Todd and then he started bringing on other people and we realized that we needed uh, business automation. We went from Airtable to Monday.com to sort of build in more automation rules. And then last year, we basically spent the entire year, other than you know running the sponsorship models and producing the content, blowing out all of the automation. And so everything from which guests do we reach out to? How do we evaluate who the guests are? How do we invite them? Who's sending the emails to make sure that they know when to show up and schedule the content? How do we publish the content? Who's doing the show notes, the quotes, publishing, social media? Who's sending the stats to the guest after the downloads, after the episodes have been published so people know how many times they've been downloaded? Like all of those tasks are handled by a writer, a publisher, a communications manager we have a list builder on staff um and then you know we basically hired duplicate teams so we've got one team for voices search one team for martech podcast and and we were able to duplicate the automation we were using from one show to the next and so at the beginning of this year um or the end of last year i said hey i've got this automation system on rails I can spin out another show tomorrow, but the biggest problem that I have is my personal bandwidth. It takes a lot of energy and effort to be the host of a show, as I'm sure you know. Yeah. <laughs> and I didn't want to do a third one, but I wanted my business to keep growing because we needed more inventory to sell more sponsorships. And so what we did was we said, well, let's go package our marketing automation, our content automation. We'll call it content as a service. And we will go sell to uh, you know an enterprise. Hey, we will create a daily podcast for you. You're going to provide us with the host. So we're going to build influence for someone in your organization. Um, we're going to manage the entire process. The host only has to show up for three hours a week to record two interviews and do some content planning. And so in three hours a week, you get a daily podcast with social media, a newsletter, and we have the ability to grab all of the data from who's listening to the podcast and retarget it. And we can drive not only that awareness that I talked about before, but the demand generation as well. And so out of that, now all of a sudden we were looking around saying, hey, we've got a content as a service business. 
And then that's what led to the recent rebrand was it wasn't really my consulting practice anymore. We didn't need a name to describe what we were doing. I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, Factor. Now, it's a new year. I'm busy. I always, always, always am running out of time. So when it comes to meals, I don't want to wait in line at a grocery store. I don't want to even have to drive if I don't have to. And I definitely don't want to spend a ton of time cooking in the kitchen. But now I don't have to meal plan or prep thanks to Factor. Factor makes it easy for me to eat clean 24-7. They deliver fresh, never frozen prepared meals that are so delicious you won't believe they're actually good for you. Factor saves time by delivering chef-crafted meals directly to my door, eliminating the hassle of grocery shopping, meal prep, but most importantly, eliminating the hassle of cleaning. And they have 27 meal options every single week, so I can guarantee you're not gonna be bored. They also offer tons of great nutritional additions. They have vegan and veggie meals. They have cold-pressed juices, smoothies, energy bites, plant-based bars, extra protein, veggie sides, and what really whatever you want to keep you fueled and focused all through the day. If you wanna try out Factor, they've set up a special code just for Success Story podcast listeners. So head over to go.factor75.com slash plans. That is go.factor75.com slash plans. Use the code SUCCESS120. That's going to give you $120 off your first five weeks of meals. Remember, that is code SUCCESS120 at go.factor75.com slash plans for $120 off. All right, so... Um, no, I, I think the only thing that you have to worry about when you're building this out is is talent is because copying and pasting the team you already have so that you can scale it up. I don't worry about scaling the contractor, right? There's not that they're not valuable. We, we put a lot of work into finding and training great contractors, but there's a huge supply of um, wage workers. I don't know what mm -hmm. the appropriate way to say it, but you know, people that were paying on an hourly wage to do a repetitive task. Um, so finding them and sorting through them, like we've built in the processes to understand who's good and give them the materials they need to be successful. What I worry about is me and my ability to get out of the company's way to scale. Right, I need to go figure out how to scale monetization, which means I need to go find someone to run monetization for us. We need to go build out a customer success function. And so the, the low-wage repetitive task workers, I think, are easy to find and easy to scale. It's the great, when we go from three podcasts to 30, and there's that middle level of someone that needs to go manage the operations and customer success and revenue generation and ad sales and marketing that tier of me running my organization that's what keeps me up at night like can i go find that talent and understand what makes them tick and onboard them well enough that they are hungry and motivated to stick around and see the mission all the way through like i think that's my biggest challenge not just mm -hmm. hey we need another writer the writers are great and they're important, but I think we can find those at scale. Just to, to think through that problem, are you trying to, as you scale this out, are you trying to hire like a, a jack of all trades generalist to fill that gap? Just a very experienced, like 
in-house entrepreneur that would take on the sales and the customer success and, and, and everything that you're doing? Or would you just perhaps model out your business differently and then start hiring specific roles? So now you have a VP sales and now you have a customer success person and you're going to turn into three people or something like that. Yeah. I mean, right now I'm, I have five roles. People. Five and so or whatever it is, yeah. it's carving out the individual roles for somebody to run revenue monetization. Like that's one role. I think customer success is another one, right? There's somebody who's going to go sell the content as, figure out how we're going to sell this content as a service business, package it up, make sure people understand what it is. There is somebody that is going to take the sponsors once they've been, you know, signed the contract and make sure that they're successful and run the campaigns for us. Those are two different roles. Um, so I think that, you know, when I think about what my job is, it is, you know, the executive function, it is ad sales for two of the three shows. It is being the podcast host. I manage the operators, the operations, um, but there's a middle level there. So it's basically what I'm doing in operations where I'm not in the day-to-day -day content publishing operations. There's somebody else there that's reporting up to me saying, uh, you know, here's what's happening with operations. Here's the problem I'm having. How should we solve it? So basically building in that management level is the next challenge for me as I'm moving now into the executive function and away from being sort of a primary operator. I don't think that, I think that, um you're concerned about it, but candidly, uh, you already know that you know that you have to do it to grow the business. So I would say that people that have grown businesses much larger than yours into the, you know, the tens of millions, like sometimes they still have a hard time extricating and removing themselves from the day-to-day -day operations. And then you have this micromanaging CEO, like you're very cognizant of it. Like you're very, very aware that you have to do that. So I don't see that as a, I don't see that as a concern. I would say it's more of a concern if you weren't aware of that at this stage in the game. I just assume all those people are smarter, better looking and more educated than I am. And so I have to go figure it out for myself. But you know, it's not exactly a Ferrari I'm driving here. It's it's like, honestly, though, but like, knowing that you have to solve for that is half the battle. Like you can like, I know. really I'm, knowing I'm, that you solve I'm for joking that. around, but I, the whole business model is built on the idea that there is a, I call it the economics of geography, but there is this huge talent pool and we've yeah. already built out the documentation and we've proven that we can scale hiring multiple teams. So hiring the, the people to staff the teams are not the problem. It is building in the quality assurance to manage that as an example, or kind of building the same processes in the other functions of the business, which is marketing, revenue, customer success. Are you um are you like a an Upwork person or a top tal or a marketer hire or is there something else we're, that you we're recommend? We're all over the all over the map. We've done Upwork, uh, FreeUp is a good one. Uh, a handful of Fibers. Um, I know that there's a couple other that we've kicked the tires on. Uh, Upwork seems to be kind of the dominant player in the space, yeah. and for all of the sort of technical challenges that it has, it's got the the largest pool of yeah talent. talent yeah yeah and to me that's what really matters good man and when you do this like you have to staff up a whole like because you have automations built in but there's also some mm -hmm. people executing so you've now you've figured out the ideal uh ideal person to staff up and then you just sort of scale out all these different job positions when you do this yeah, content we, as a we, service or you know do document 
handoff. Uh, I'm sure yeah. there's a better acronym for uh, <laughs> that process. But, you know, I took the things that I was doing and I documented and handed it off. And then we automated the notifications of this task needs to be done. Now, when we hire, you know, there's, let's call it three people per podcast other than the host. So four people total. Um, oh, I forgot the editor. Five people total for a show. Um, you know, someone can do multiple shows. I'm the host for the Voices of Search podcast and the MarTech podcast. I'm not the host for the Revenue Generator podcast, our third show. Right, but our writer is writing for two shows. So we're basically we, we what we're figuring out is each individual contractor can basically handle the workload for three shows. Gotcha. And so we already have two, let's call them teams of the four people. I'll exclude the host for now. Um so there's two teams of four. So we have the capacity for six shows. We're doing three, so I don't have to hire anybody until we get to the sixth show. Now, in reality, when we bring on more shows, we won't have a team operate at capacity. We'll bring on more staff, so we always have capacity to bring on new shows and get people trained on shows that are already up and running and have you know process and, and other team members they can rely on. But that's basically the model that we're building out now is we go find companies that want to build awareness and demand at the same time will help them build influence. So we'll have a member of their team be our host. We've got the process already figured out. And then that helps us produce the content without taking a lot of work on their end. And the output of that is not only a daily podcast. So they're out there nurturing, you know, being visible, staying in front, building thought leadership, owning the conversation. But then we take the data that is spun out of the podcast, the social media, the newsletter, the website, and we build retargeting and direct response campaigns to feed into their funnel. Um, and so that's kind of the, the other piece of the puzzle for us. It's not just we're a, a podcast production shop. There's lots of it is that we can convert podcasts into actual like site visitors that have listened to content and know your brand. Amazing. Um, and I want to understand a little bit more of uh, your mindset and your uh, your posture towards monetization, because obviously this whole exercise and building out all these different shows is how you're choosing to build your business. So the question I'm asking is why would you not just grow that one show, grow that audience? And then maybe it's just easier to sell an advertising spot against that larger audience. Maybe it's, I guess now, you know, actually, as you, as you describe it, I kind of get it because now you have opportunity to monetize and do like a B2B sales play, but then ultimately, so you can sell that way. But then you can also sell against each audience for each podcast. You can sell advertiser spots or sponsor slots as well. I'm going to answer the question you're you're dancing around. Yes, please. Yes. Why aren't you just <laughs> focusing on the Martech podcast? That show 100%. is doing well, and all of a sudden you're spinning out three shows. Why why do this? So, a couple different reasons. One. There are only so many people interested in marketing and technology. So there is a ceiling on the size of that show. We have not reached it, but it's a niche audience. I don't pretend that the MarTech podcast is going to be a 10 million download a month show. It's not, right? It's going to be multiple hundreds of thousands of people listening to the show, hopefully at scale. Right now, we're 
tens of thousands of people listening to the show. We get sixty to 90,000 downloads a month. That's tens of thousands of people. So we'll fill a basketball arena with people that are interested in marketing and technology. Mm-hmm. Maybe someday it'll be a football stadium. It's not uh, you know, uh, an entire state worth of people. Um, for us to continue to expand, we either you know, try to grow the MarTech industry, that's going to be challenging for us to do. We can pick off other verticals. That's the model that we've chosen. So we went MarTech and SEO and the revenue generation industry. Um, you know, we could do sales. We can do all sorts of other verticals and sort of build this podcast network that generally owns the B2B business influencer space. That's probably where we're going to land with our our podcast network. Um, It's easy for us because we built this automation to spin out new shows, get them to scale and get them to monetization quickly. So my rationale for not focusing on the MarTech podcast, I am focused on the MarTech podcast. It's the show we're trying to grow the most and the fastest and the biggest of our properties. I just don't pretend that the MarTech podcast is going to be the Bill Simmons podcast or or Joe Rogan or, mm-hmm. you know, heck, I'm not even pretending it's going to be uh, success stories with Scott Clary, you know. <laughs> it's it's going to be there. Someday, it's going to be there. Not. Don't don't you worry. You're not you're not that far off. But <laughs> you're, doing pretty good. you're doing pretty good. You're doing pretty good. But but because we were able to monetize at 10x what the industry averages. I don't need the MarTech podcast to be a step-level function larger Mm -hmm. for it to monetize enough to merit me doing it. So I'd rather have each podcast make $150,000 to $500,000 and have 10 of them than to have one podcast that I hope maxes out and gets to a million dollars of revenue. I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, ExpressVPN. Now, ExpressVPN is my preferred VPN of choice. I use it. I've had all my sponsors, but I actually have used ExpressVPN for years now. In the online privacy, safety, and security world, they are the best. And I think we can all get behind how important it is to have safety, security, and privacy online. Not all VPNs are built the same, which is why when you're choosing a VPN to protect yourself, you have to choose a VPN you trust. These are the reasons why I trust ExpressVPN. The first thing they don't do is they do not log your activity online. Lots of cheap or free VPNs make money by advertising or selling your data to advertisers. ExpressVPN doesn't do this. So they've developed a technology, it's called Trusted Server, that makes their VPN servers incapable of storing any data at all. The second thing they do well is speed. So ExpressVPN uses something called Lightway. This is a VPN protocol they engineered to make user speeds faster than ever. You've tried VPNs before. I've tried VPNs before where you try and load a site, you try and watch a movie. It doesn't work. It doesn't work at all or it doesn't work well. ExpressVPN solves for this. So it feels like you're browsing the internet without a VPN, even though you are. And lastly, it's extremely user-friendly to set up. So it's not complicated. You load up the app, you press connect, and you're online, you're protected, and you're safe. So extremely user-friendly, which is important for people that just want an easy browsing experience. That's what a VPN should be. It shouldn't be technical. I always recommend protecting yourself with a VPN. Uh, ExpressVPN and Success Story, we partnered up. They put together a special link, expressvpn.com slash success story. 
And if you go to expressvpn.com slash success story, you'll get an extra three months free on a one-year package. So that's expressvpn.com slash success story. Three months free on a one-year package, expressvpn.com slash success story. Go visit expressvpn.com slash success story to learn more. And how did you do that? How did you 10x the average uh, advertiser spend? Because that's also so very interesting. The industry standard is selling podcast advertisings, uh, advertising on a CPM basis, mm -hmm. which is great for the advertiser and even better for the agencies. But the problem with that is not good for me and you, right? As the podcaster, as the publisher, I built the MarTech podcast, which in its 11th month, I mentioned hit 10,000 downloads. So there was, I don't know, three, 4,000, five, 6,000 people that were listening to it. So I've got a room of 5,000 marketers that make $200,000 a year, and an agency wants me to sell the advertising in inventory for that for Am I doing it right? Two hundred fifty bucks a month. About yeah. Maybe it's twenty five hundred bucks. Maybe I'm missing a zero. No, but either way, not. I can't. I like a yeah. Like I'd say a thirty five. How many CPM podcast or... hosts does it take to figure out what the CPM is? Uh, <laughs> at least two. Yeah. Moral of the story is it's not enough to pay San Francisco rent. So I'm spending half of my time, and if it's it's twenty five hundred bucks a month, I'm making thirty thousand dollars a year from my podcast. I can't do that with half my time. Now I'm making $60,000 a year with all of my time. I need multiple six figures to be able to afford living in the San Francisco Bay Area. I'm not doing this project for that amount of money. So how do I figure out how to scale the monetization without relying on, you know, sort of the industry standard of agencies coming to podcasters and saying, I want to buy your inventory on the cheap. Well, you have to to figure out other ways to provide value and go direct to the people that are interested in leveraging your audience. And so what we did was we've got five products. One, advertorial content. We invite the people that are sponsoring our podcasts to be guests on the show. And we are very upfront about, hey, this person is a sponsor of the podcast, but guess what? We're not doing a sales pitch. We are just giving them more airtime to build thought leadership and expertise. So an advertorial sponsor gets five episodes that are 15 minutes each instead of an invited guest who gets two. Mm -hmm. Now we've got a week's worth of thematic content. So success stories week on the MarTech podcast with Scott Clary, a sponsor of the MarTech podcast. Once we have that piece of advertorial content, we can do content syndication. So we take the piece of content and we syndicate it outside of our existing audience. So we are marketing that content, not just to our existing audience, but we're going out and finding people that look like our listeners. And we're saying, here's a great piece of content. You should listen to it. It's a win-win for both parties. They get additional exposure. They're paying for our marketing because we're going and finding people outside of our audience. Third, the audio advertising, right? Everybody kind of knows, hopefully knows how this medium works. You put an ad into a podcast and people pay you for it. We sell on a weekly or a monthly basis, and it's a fixed flat fee. It's not based on the number of impressions that we serve. We have a benchmark. We serve 75 to 125,000 impressions a month, and we charge, I don't remember what the rate is now, 8,000 bucks a month or something like that. The last piece is what differentiates us. So we have the ability to, to suck the data out of the podcasts. 
The IP address gets resolved into a mobile app ID, which allows us to target the households that are listening to a given piece of content, that are exposed to a given ad, or just have listened to our show as a whole. And so because we can figure out who's listening to our content, we can do two things. One, GDPR compliant, CCPA compliant, we could share access to the audiences through social media channels. So I could take my first party data, the people that are listening to my podcast, I could put it into Facebook, create an audience, and I could share that audience with the sponsor of the podcast because they're a contributor in creating the content. So they're marketing to their audience as well because they are a creator of the content. So we can share access, which means that the people that are our sponsors are able to retarget the people that were exposed to their ads or listen to their content. And on the flip side, we can also create lookalike audiences from the people who listen to the content and then do direct response marketing that drives traffic from our listeners through Facebook, through Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, whatever it is, we create uh, basically direct response campaigns that use the seed data that we've got from the podcast listeners to drive traffic to the funnel and an offer from our sponsors. Long-winded way of saying, we're just not putting up an ad and saying, I hope people heard you and I hope they get to your website because that's what the CPM model works out to be. You want to buy some airtime? I'll talk about you for 30 seconds. Thanks. Goodbye. We are building the story, sharing the content, advertising a specific offer to build awareness, giving people access to promote content and services to the people that heard their content. And we're taking that offer that our sponsors are putting together and we are putting it in front of not only the people that heard it, but a look like audience to drive traffic and adoption of that offer. So that instead of being 2500 bucks is a 10 to $20,000 a month sponsorship, which is why we're 10x the average podcast now, in terms of monetization. Now, how did you scale that sales effort? Because now that's the offer, but you still have to go outbound. So tips for people that say they do have an offer, it probably won't be as complex as yours day one, but say they still want to uh, skip the middleman, skip the broker or the agency, and they want to go to their clients. What's your sales strategy? Are you using something like an Apollo or something like that? Or are you just uh, hiring outsourced sales reps? It's actually something that we are in the midst of renovating. So when we started doing this four years ago, um, we went through the, I mean, we're the MarTech podcast. So we went and looked at Scott Brinker's list of 8,000 MarTech companies. And we said, we're going to email 10 of these people who are running the marketing department at these companies introducing ourselves a week. And we're four years in and we're almost at the end of that list because it's an 8,000 company list at this point. And so it has not been very scientific in terms of who we're reaching out to. Now, the email copy is pretty good. Our response rates are good. We built lots of templates so I don't have to do a lot of heavy lifting when people respond. So 90% of the time when somebody responds to the templatized email, um, I have a templatized response that answers their question. And so that means I'm able to document, process, and offboard most of that work. So, you know, somebody else is sending the initial outreach campaigns. It's a four email drip sequence. When the responses come back, I've got a VA that is sending the templatized response. And if they don't understand what the person's asking, or if they aren't sure we don't have the right template, then it goes into my inbox and I'm 
writing a manual response. So that's kind of how so we you have scale a pretty low tech. You have a very low tech sales a, a sales strategy. You're not constantly prospecting. You're going slow, like your your response rates high. Um, you're not running response uh, outbound on autopilot ongoing no it's also not great right now it's it's deteriorated over the years where it was a really good well-targeted you know mm. cutting edge system four years ago and we've been kind of running the playbook and yeah. honestly what happened was we're less reliant on finding individual sponsors um so let's i'll i'll use round numbers here let's say that the average sponsorship is a ten thousand dollar sponsorship Instead of looking for twelve ten thousand dollars sponsorships, we have two ad spots. There's the presenting sponsorship, which will sell for, you know, one hundred fifty thousand dollars, and that's half of the inventory. It's the first placement in every podcast. These are not the actual numbers. I'm just trying to use round numbers. Yeah. Um, and then there's the twelve ten thousand dollar ten to twenty thousand dollars sponsorships that we're selling. And so because we've got this presenting sponsorship relationship, HubSpot Podcast Network, we're a member for the MarTech Podcast. Um, we had one for the uh, Voices of Search podcast for years. Um, and then the Revenue Generator Podcast, the, the company that's providing us with the host, Lean Data, is the presenting sponsor of the podcast. And so basically, we're able to make the $100,000 checks for these presenting sponsor relationships. And then it takes the pressure off of finding $12,000 to $20,000 sponsorships. So honestly, we've let our sponsorship model, the marketing campaign model, deteriorate a little because we've been cultivating these sponsorship relationships and building out the content as a service business so we can find more $100,000 checks and not have to rely on. Ten to twenty thousand dollar checks. So you've built this. You've built this incredible network. Now, where do you want to take it going forward? Do you want to build out other mediums that you can eventually sell as part of this package? Would you go into other formats um, that aren't podcasts, or is this something that you just want to scale up and have twenty so different I, podcasts? I think point? that the there's vertical and horizontal uh, expansion on the horizon for us. I think the model is we find a presenting sponsor in a in a vertical that we we're not already working in. So we'll go find a somebody who wants to own the sales tech podcast instead of the martech podcast and that's a $100,000 a year payment, right? So we're we're already monetizing the podcast from day 1 because we're going to build awareness for that company and build data for them to do demand gen. Um that gives us the excess inventory to then go sell the secondary sponsorships, the marketing campaign, the monthly sponsorship. So we make $100,000, $150,000 a year from the presenting sponsorship, and then it opens up somewhere between $120,000 to $250,000 of inventory that we can sell once that show has scaled. So now we're looking at a $500,000 annual you know, potentially, let's call it three hundred thousand dollar annual um, revenue opportunity for that show. That to me is the vertical, the vertical expansion. The horizontal expansion is well, we're building out newsletters for each individual property. 
And with newsletters, we can go and say, hey, do you want to be associated with the newsletter? Give us $500 a month and we'll splash your logo on the newsletter and you can do a piece of advertorial content on the podcast. And so now we're building in another vehicle where there's room for the $500 check, the $10,000 check and the $100,000 check. And so there's different you know, properties, all that create data. The, the, and to me, that's the whole idea is what are the different channels that you can use that help build awareness that we can gather data from to help support the overall mission of connecting brands with creators that reach their audience. So, you know, I think that there's expansion, not just in terms of which verticals are we taking, but also which mediums are we using to reach the audience. And and you're so entrenched in this industry. I'm curious. Do you see more businesses uh, turning to mediums like podcasting uh, as as a way to connect with their audiences? Do you feel like this is the future of marketing? I think the future of marketing is bridging the gap between the what are traditionally the awareness driving marketing channels. Podcasting is obviously new um, and growing incredibly quickly. Um, but, you know, YouTube or video, uh, streaming, on demand, even the old stuff, the TV, the radio, the stuff that you don't normally like, we're going to get you in front of this large audience, hopefully it's targeted. Um, but basically being able to capture the data that comes out of all of those channels and use it to boost and target your performance marketing. So you get this connection between did you hear about my company? Do you think we're smart to here is the offer the company has? So to me, that's really the future. That's what our business is centered on, is making the connection between both of these channels, the awareness driving channels and the demand gen channels. I think that smart marketers are going to be really good at tying those two things together as opposed to them living in silos. Amazing. Okay. Um, we've, we have absolutely dissected um, how you built your business. So I appreciate that. Um, that was really, that was really insightful. And I do hope that, uh, some marketers can take, uh, some inspiration, um, and, and how you can marry the two, because I, I really do love the way that you have tied together the awareness plus the performance, because I don't really think I've ever seen somebody do it at the level that you're doing it at, and then turning it into a, an actual service, to be quite honest. I, I've never really seen it that granular. I feel like even when I speak to marketers, they generally um, focus on performance. And then after the performance metrics are sort of um, dialed in, then they can focus on more of the fun stuff. But what you're doing is effectively showing that it doesn't have to be one or the other. It can be both simultaneously. And that's, that's essentially what you're building out for companies. It goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning of our conversation. You know, I, I screwed up because I just focused on the demand gen at that role that, you know, my last real job. Um, marketing is both an art and a science, right? So you need to understand all the warm fuzzies of who my customers are, what are their pain points, you know, how do I articulate that I can solve their pain, but having them be aware of it is not enough. You need to put the vehicles to capture their attention and interest and engagement. And that's not only building the awareness, but the demand gen hooks as well. So, you know, there's multiple ways to skin a cat. We, we're trying to take advantage of sort of this new media uh, industry and, and bridge the gap between the two of those. 
Um, if people want to, well, first of all, two things. So I'm going to do a couple of rapid fire questions just to, to close it out. But um, oh, here's before we pivot, yeah, the, they're, not, they're not that stressful. <laughs> I appreciate that you think that I, I grill guests and give them the, the third degree on this, but it's, they're not that bad. Um, so uh, closing thoughts on, on where you want to take, uh, like where you actually want to take here everything. Um, where do you want to take in the future? What do you what do you hope to accomplish if you were going to look back on your life in thirty years from now? What impact do you want to have on the world of marketing, business, tech? And then there's a two part question which everybody hates, but it, and then all your socials, your website, all that. So impact on the on the world of marketing when you're when you're done and gone in the future, and then uh, where can people reach you? Okay. Um... When I was writing the website after I left my last job, I sat down and one of the first lines of copy was, are you ready to give your brand a voice? And I was just writing some bullshit copy, excuse my language, to try <laughs> to get people to think I was smart and creative. Um, but that's really become the central thesis of my career is I want to help give brands their voice. And that's not just soulless companies talking about how they're going to sell their products or services. It is highlighting the people that work at organizations and helping them understand what their motivation is and connect with the, their prospects. So my goal is to help brands cultivate their voice. Um, the second question was just how to get in touch with me. How do, how do we, how do we get in touch with you? I know. <laughs> It always screws people. No, the second part was just how do we get in touch with you? All your socials, all your website. Yeah. Uh, we just relaunched, or we just launched this week. I hear everything dot com, um, and for the record, it's H E A R, not H E R E. So I hear everything dot com, which is uh, the best way that I can articulate what my company does in a visual format. Um, we've got three podcasts going out martechpod.com for the martech podcast voices of search.com for the uh seo community and the revenue generator podcast which is revgenpod.com um there's a million different social handles and everything you could probably find me under ben j shap b e n j s a don't look up don't look up benjamin shapiro you're not going to find guy. him <laughs> we're not going to get into politics right now but i'm not him um all right, let's do a couple of rapid fire, and obviously everything else will be linked up in the show notes. Oh, shit, I so, thought those were the rapid fire questions. Those were not rapid fire. Those are not rapid fire. Um, All right, let's do it. Biggest challenge that you've had to overcome in your personal or professional life, what was it? How did you overcome it? Biggest challenge I've had to overcome in my personal and professional life. Or, or professional. Whew. I mean, that's going deep. Um. I was pretty butthurt after leaving the last job. And and I think that professionally speaking, that was the hardest thing that I had to deal with. The rec I'd worked for about a decade trying to get this job and then it didn't work out. And so I needed to course correct and do my soul searching. So doubling down on I'm just going to do the things that I do well and focus on my inherent skills without ignoring the things that I need to develop. But you know, be who you are um, was probably what got me through that tough phase. And, and fortunately, at the same time, my girlfriend at the time was, you know, uh, on on the verge of becoming my fiance and is now my wife. 
Um, and so, you know, I had a good support system and my family and everything there that helped me get through the, the challenging times. But we all go through our stuff. Just be yourself. And, and that's my advice. If you had to pick one person, obviously there's been many, but pick one person who's had an incredible impact on your life. Who was that person? What did they teach you? Um, I never had to look for a role model because I always had my dad and my mom as well. Um, but, you know, my dad and I are similar in sort of how we think about and approach life. And so, um, and I, it's funny, I think about this now that I am a dad and I have two young boys. And so being a good role model, um, there's no one thing that my dad taught me. It's the whole picture of how to be a good person, how to be a mensch. Um, mm -hmm. And so that's the easy one to answer of like, who's my role model? And I didn't have to look beyond, you know, the front door to find him. And so being a good parent is, uh, you know, something that we all hopefully aspire to. Mm -hmm. Very good. If you had to pick a book or podcast, obviously none of yours, but another book or podcast that's impacted you, what was it? Um. I'll give you two books, which is funny because I, I'm a podcaster. I listen to most stuff, but um, two books that really had a profound impact on me. Um, and of course, I'm going to blank on their name. Uh, John Warlow is the host of Built to Sell Radio, which is a podcast. I think the book was called Built to Sell. Um, it is. But he wrote a book. Is it? Yeah, it is. It's Built to Sell as well. It's his book. He's got a couple yeah. books, and I think the yeah. one that really made an impact on me was Built to Sell. Um, and that was basically about standardization and building a process, and it was in a narrative format. So from a business perspective, that was really impactful for me. And I just I think he's a great guy and, and a, an incredible podcast host, a good writer. So I have a lot of respect for John Warlow. Um, Born to Run is a book about a tribe of, uh, in Mexico that are the fastest runners in the world and uh, basically they run without shoes and and it basically goes into the dynamics and sort of the um the the reason why people run and how we were able to survive and i thought that was a fascinating book it was uh, good because i'm a, a terribly slow but enjoy running um and so that was actually an incredible read and also something i'm passionate about as well amazing uh, if you could and tell your 20, oh, sorry, go ahead. Podcast. let's throw that one in there as well. <laughs> Why not? Why not? But that doesn't count. Um, no, those are both good. Those are, I, I just Google border born to run to find the, to find the book. And I got the Bruce Springsteen song. So That's I got it too, <laughs> but I'll have to find the book. Cause those are two books that have never been, um, have never been, uh, brought up on this show before. So I always like when I, like you get all the base, you get all the basics, you get all the all the sales books, all the marketing books, all the all the lean startup to atomic habits. Those are all the the boring cliches. But um, I love when new. I don't books want come to say your I'll... other guests are boring, but those seem like boring answers. They they are boring answers. I like books that when you tell me them, like five minutes after you tell me them, I'm gonna go get them on Amazon and add them to the shelf. Um, Both those of are those good. are in audiobook format, which is probably why they stuck in my head so much because I read them and then I went back and listened to the audiobooks. Very good. Um, if you could tell your 20 year old self one thing, what would it be? Um, don't drink so much beer. You're going to be fat when you hit 40. Um, <laughs> good advice and, uh, relax. You'll be fine. And then last question, uh, what does success mean to you? 
what does success mean to me? Um, I think being successful is a multifaceted prospect. It is um, being happy doing what you're doing, um, helping the people around you achieve what their goals are, uh, monetary success, you know, making a positive impact on the people that you influence and, and work with. Um, so I don't know if there's one thing that I think about successful, think about make someone successful, but it's more, it's like Jerry Maguire. Um, the, the, the football player and Jerry Maguire uh, talked about the qualm. It's the whole package. You know, being a success is being happy, being excited when you wake up to go do your job, getting credit for it, feeling like you're validated and you can do the things that you want to do. I know a lot of entrepreneurs listen to this show and NetSuite has been a huge supporter for entrepreneurs, for business owners, because there's one thing that we all know. Business is about making money and it's about your bottom line. And the less you spend on the nuts and bolts of running your business, the more profits you keep. But these days, everything is costing more. Supplies, people, shipping. It squeezes your margins. And I've been there juggling multiple systems for finance, inventory, you name it, each with its own costs and its own set of headaches. That's why I made the switch to NetSuite by Oracle. It's changed our company. Think about it. NetSuite is one of the top financial systems out there. It puts your whole business on one platform, accounting, finance, the works, one data source for everyone. There's no more mismatched info. And because it's in the cloud, it slashes your IT costs. No more servers, no more updates. Just access NetSuite from anywhere. With one integrated suite, your overhead drops big time. And here's the real win. Efficiency. Everything's connected in NetSuite. Costs are ridiculous lately. Find a proven way to reduce your expenses and get better performance out of your team. It's a no-brainer, and that's what NetSuite offers. Over 37,000 companies have figured this out already. You have to join them. Right now, through to April 15th, NetSuite's got an incredible, flexible financing plan. Check it out and see the savings yourself at netsuite.com slash scottclary. That's netsuite.com slash scottclary. Hiring as a small business owner is a major pain. That's why LinkedIn is supporting today's episode. You need people with the right skills and experience, but finding them can take forever. It is incredibly frustrating to keep seeing candidates who just aren't a good fit, and that's why LinkedIn Jobs has been a game changer. Let me tell you a little story. We needed to hire a graphic designer, somebody with specific tech and software knowledge and the ability to truly understand our brand. And I started with all the usual job boards and it's the same old story. Tons of irrelevant applications. No one's really matching my needs. I tried LinkedIn jobs and the quality of candidates was just on another level. People with impressive portfolios, relevant expertise. I finally felt like I was interviewing the right people. That's truly the power of LinkedIn's massive professional network. You're tapping into this huge pool of talent you simply wouldn't find on other sites. It's about finding those niche candidates you actually need. And with the right people in front of you, hiring becomes a breeze. Did you know that 86% of small businesses find a qualified candidate on LinkedIn jobs within 24 hours. That is how well their system works. Honestly, do yourself a favor and try LinkedIn jobs next time you're hiring. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash excellence. That's linkedin.com slash excellence. Terms and conditions apply, but it's definitely worth trying out.
I don't know about you, but the idea of being harassed, scammed, or even worse, all because somebody found my personal information online, that's terrifying. Our political opinions, our addresses, even stuff about our families, it's out there for anyone to grab. And did you know that data brokers are allowed to sell information on over 98% of Americans? It's scary stuff. That's why I've partnered with Delete Me. I personally use Delete Me. They're a big friend of the podcast because I put myself out there online. So safety is a huge concern. It's really scary how easy it is to find someone's details and information. But Delete Me creates a layer of protection that we all need. You tell Delete Me what you want gone and they make it disappear from those sketchy data broker sites. And Delete Me doesn't stop. They constantly monitor the web to keep your information off those lists. It's like having a privacy watchdog that never sleeps. You need to take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. They're giving a special discount for all Success Story podcast listeners. Get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash success and use promo code success at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash success and enter code success at checkout. J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E dot com slash success. Hey everyone, I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond Bourbon. Now I don't have a lot of liquor sponsors on this show. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is actually one of my favorites. I've drank it for a few years now, and this is why we actually decided to work together. Heaven Hill Distillery, family-owned since 1935, is a great entrepreneur story, too. So there's five brothers. They filled their first whiskey barrels back in 1935, and their legacy still lives on today. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is aged over seven years. That's three more than required by the Bottled and Bond Act of 1897. This means the best quality, the best purity, and the best consistency. This is not just average bourbon. It's the winner of the double gold medals at multiple 2023 World Spirits competitions, and they've won the very prestigious Triple Still Award. It's a very big deal in the liquor and bourbon world. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond boasts an exceptionally smooth oak flavor, while its aroma offers a sweet blend of caramel and smooth vanilla. If you love bourbon, you need to try Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond. Available nationally, look for a bottle at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. Think back to your last few days in the office. Did any of them leave you feeling really accomplished? Not the kind of day where you're running around like crazy, but where you've made real progress on something that matters. Because being busy doesn't always mean being productive. And I bet you we've all been there. And maybe it's time to rethink what it means to get things done. Today's episode is sponsored by Belay, and what they help you do is, instead of getting sucked into emails and to-do lists, they help you delegate tasks and focus on big goals. They can connect you with top-notch U.S.-based talent who are ready to take on those time-consuming tasks that bog you down. Let's be real. There are way more important things you could be doing than bookkeeping or wrangling a packed inbox. They have virtual assistants to handle all of those pesky administrative tasks or accounting professionals to take care of all your financials. But here's the best part. You don't have to waste weeks searching for the right person. Belay's personalized matching service works quickly, sometimes matching you with the right talent to take stuff off your plate in under a week. Are you ready to try a different way of working? Check out Belay's list of the top 25 things you can delegate to a virtual assistant. It might just change your business and your life. Text SUCCESS, that's S-U-C-C-E-S-S, to 55123 to get the list and to start transforming your to-do list with Belay. 